your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made it seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Bascom, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Welcome back to the 1050 Bascom podcast. Today, we will be joined by Professor Barry Burden to discuss the first Republican presidential primary debate that was held in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on Wednesday, August 23rd. Barry Burden is a professor of political science, and he also serves as the director of the Elections Research Center here at UW-Madison. We hope that you enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Burden, and welcome back to the 1050 Bascom podcast. We're very excited to have you back on the show today to hear your takes on what was a very dynamic and interesting first Republican presidential primary debate. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here to talk about it. Of course. So let's just go ahead and hop right in then. What are some of your main takeaways from this first debate? Well, I think the main takeaway is that this is still Donald Trump's Republican Party. He was not present. He boycotted the debate and did an interview instead. But the conversation inevitably gravitated towards him in the second half of the debate. And none of the candidates right now is really posing a serious challenge to him. There were no breakout performances in the sense of somebody leaping to the front of the pack and suddenly, uh, you know, giving Trump a serious run for the money. A lot of people have discussed the debate as kind of being a competition for vice president, (laughs) who will be his running mate potentially. A couple of those folks definitely do not want to run with him, but uh, several others, maybe that is the goal. So it's, it really still feels like an undercard debate. If you remember those from 2016, the kind of the second tier candidates fighting to be the ones who, who might give Trump some, a serious run down the road. Yeah, you mentioned there being no standout performances. I was wondering if there were any performances that you have thought were underwhelming or people who kind of fell short of expectations or just generally performed uh, in a manner that worsened their chances. Yeah, I, I did think the performances varied. There were some candidates who were pretty forgettable. Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, really interesting candidate, but not being talked about at all since the debate. He was very quiet and just never made a move or distinguished himself in any way. Mike Pence, I think, held his own and defended himself well, but is not likely to get a lot of traction. So I don't think it was a poor performance. It just wasn't something that is going to change his status in the pack. No one may remember now that Asa Hutchinson was also on the stage. He's the governor from Arkansas. Doug Burgum, also a governor on the stage. They were both at the ends, uh, barely polling enough to even get into the debate in the first place. So they did fine, but I think most of them don't have much future in this competition this year. Um, but there were a couple others who got real notice. Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, Google searches about him during the debate were soaring because no one knew who he was, and he was so interesting. I think views about him are pretty polarized at this point. There were some Republicans, especially Trump supporters, who were excited to see the things he was saying, taking on establishment politicians and being plain spoken and kind of loud and you know opinionated. Uh, that really resonated. For others, I think he rubbed people the wrong way. And so I don't know if that's an underperformance or overperformance, but people are talking about him still. And um, it's probably going to get him some positive movement in the polls net of even people being a little dissatisfied in some quarters. 
And seeing that we are in Wisconsin, I think it would be remiss of us not to discuss the significance of this first debate being held in Milwaukee. So what does the location and the timing of this debate signal to you? Well, the timing, I think, was decided essentially by the RNC, the Republican National Committee, in their view that this is about when serious conversations among the candidates ought to start. And they set some thresholds for getting in, which we might talk about. And so August becomes the starting point. We're about six months out from Iowa, New Hampshire. So it seems like a a reasonable time as summer is winding down to get going. The selection of Milwaukee, you know, both parties are interested in Wisconsin (laughs) for obvious reasons. Uh, Biden won here by a small margin, about 20,000 votes. Donald Trump won here in the previous presidential election by a similar margin. We've had close elections at all different levels. And Milwaukee is just the biggest city. I don't think there's a real draw to that place in particular. And Milwaukee hardly got mentioned by name in the two hours of the debate. So I think it's the place where there is an airport and and an arena (laughs) that can, and a city that's almost big enough to put on a convention in terms of hotel rooms and other things. But, you know, the Dems were hoping to have their convention there four years ago. Republicans are now doing it. I think it's really a pitch to voters in the Midwest, especially in these three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, that have flipped back and forth in the last couple of cycles. So it's not so much Milwaukee centric as I think it's Great Lakes centric or something like that. Yeah, there was some controversy this year, both in the public discourse and in the media about the GOP's new rules for debate qualifications. Can you speak a little to what were the qualifications for the debate and how this affected participation from the candidates overall? Yeah, so there are thresholds that the RNC set to get into this debate, and those thresholds will escalate in the September debate and later debates. So it's going to get harder and harder for candidates to meet those. It's a long list of, of rules, actually, to make the debate stage in August. But the key ones are that candidates have to have gotten at least 40,000 individual donations to their campaigns. And they have to have hit at least 1% in either three national polls or two national polls and two polls from one of the early states. You got to get a little something in the polls and you got to be raising money from tens of thousands of people. Uh, That still screened out about two or three candidates who have been pretty seriously campaigning for president. Uh, They didn't quite make it. The mayor of Miami, for example, was one who didn't quite make it. Uh, Former statewide candidate in California, Larry Elder, didn't make it. I don't know if the students remember this, but debates back in the 2008-2012 presidential cycles were pretty chaotic. And there were all kinds of groups putting on the debates that were not the party itself, but were allied interest groups, that kind of thing. And it kind of got out of hand. You know, the parties felt as though they needed to rein back in some of that And then the fields of candidates have gotten so big. The Dems had, what, two dozen candidates running in 2020, and the Republicans had 17 or so in the cycle before that. We're not quite at that level. But I think what we're seeing is a real effort by both parties to get a control of this process, to weed out some of the fringe candidates who are just causing trouble for them, and to really focus attention and hopefully wrap up the nomination sooner, You know, get to a nominee so they can begin to focus on the general election. So the criteria are a little controversial. They're a little ambiguous. There was actually debate on debate day, whether people like Larry Elder had made it or not. (laughs) So the field we saw Wednesday will be smaller in September and subsequent debates. And focusing a bit more on that field, there was a notable absence on the debate stage as former President Donald Trump opted to skip this debate, instead choosing to participate in an exclusive interview with Tucker Carlson. 
what does this signify to voters, especially to voters in Wisconsin? And what ramifications could this have on the internal politics of the Republican Party? Well, it's a good, complicated question. I think the message Trump wanted to send was this is not a serious thing. And my place as the front runner is not in doubt. And so you should continue to focus on me and not on them. And so he did counter programming. He released this video interview pre recorded with Tucker Carlson at the very time the debate began, hoping to draw people there. And then he's turned himself into the Fulton County uh, folks after being indicted there, you know, just after the debate. So he's gotten attention that way as well. So he's pretty good at driving attention back to himself. You know, the Democrats were critical of him not showing up. I think the line from the Biden campaign was something like, Trump is afraid to set foot in Wisconsin, or he's uh, he's worried about Wisconsin, something like that. And yet he's going to have to campaign here, obviously, in the general election. So Trump took some fire for that. And other Republicans in the debate on Wednesday night also said they would have liked to see him on the stage as well. Trump has skipped debates before. He famously skipped one in Iowa right before the caucuses uh, in 2016. He didn't win the caucuses, but he wasn't going to win them anyway. So I don't think that skipping that debate cost him. But as we all know, he's just a guy who doesn't like to be wrangled and he carves his own path. And if he feels like he's being constrained, then he's going to zig in a different direction. So very frustrating to the RNC because, you know, one of the things they required to participate in the debate was that candidates sign a pledge that they would support the eventual nominee. Well, the eventual nominee, the likely eventual nominee didn't even participate in the debate. So it's it's a really complicated, unusual year. Yeah. And despite actually not being at the debate, the participants did occasionally take the chance to attack former President Donald Trump throughout the night. Uh, Nikki Haley called him the most disliked politician in America and suggested that he would be unfit to win the general election if he was the nominee in 2024. What do you make of the candidates' criticisms of Trump? And will this have any real impact on Trump's strong polling lead? Well, I think we got very mixed messages in the debate. In one part of the debate, the candidates were asked, would you support Trump if he were the nominee, uh, even if he were convicted of one of these crimes before the election? Of course, they've all signed a pledge just to be on that stage, but essentially just about all of them raised their hands and said they would be in favor of that. And yet when it came to questions about January 6th and certifying the electoral college vote, they stood behind Mike Pence and said they didn't believe Trump was the sort of said Trump was not the rightful winner. They thought Pence did the right thing by counting the votes in favor of Biden. So you could see all of the Republicans trying to find the line not to offend the Trump base in the party, which is definitely the biggest, most influential faction, but also to identify themselves as something different from that. You can't just be Trump because Trump already does that better than the rest of us. And so you've got to find a way to be something else. Only really Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson went after Trump directly. They were booed by the audience uh, for some of that. Uh, but that has been Christie's role. That's sort of, if we're going to talk about lanes, his, his lane is the anti-Trump lane. He's not a never-Trumper, but he's come around to be opposed to Trump. So Trump, as I said in answer to the first question, Trump is sort of the sun in the solar system and all the other candidates. I guess there are eight of them, so it's the right number. They're orbiting around him and trying to figure out how to make their way. <laughs> that is a great analogy. Shifting more now to some of the debate questions and the policy topics that were talked about, one of the top concerns going into the 2024 election has been the economy and inflation. 
How do you feel that the candidates address the economy in their statements? And was there anything that really stuck out to you from that discussion? Yeah, inflation came up quite a bit. It's probably something they're hearing on the trail from people they speak to when they're out campaigning. It's definitely a concern for the electorate as a whole and for Republicans. It's also a great way to dig at the Biden administration because you can blame them for the inflation problem. But I think it stopped a little short. You know, Republicans tried to use inflation as an issue last year in the 2022 midterms. And despite high expectations in a midterm election with a Democratic president, you would have thought Republicans would have done better than they did. It really didn't deliver for them. And if anything, inflation has ebbed a little bit since then. You know, the situation is slowly improving, even if people are still generally unhappy with things. So I'm not sure that's going to be as effective for them in the general election, especially because the economy is going to have to compete with abortion and Trump's situation with the indictments and other things. There also weren't any solutions offered. So there were complaints about Biden's performance on the economy, and that's totally expected and normal from the opposing party. But so far, we haven't gotten to what would you do to fix the inflation problem. My guess is the answer is going to be the kind of traditional Republican approach of lower taxes, cutting regulations, kind of stimulating growth and creating jobs, those kinds of things. But Biden will have something to say about that. He's been on his tour promoting Bidenomics, as he's calling it. So I I would guess these economic issues will continue through the next debates and into the general. But I think the traction from them is probably limited. Yeah, and kind of sticking to some of these like key issues, the moderators asked candidates about abortion, noting that since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, abortion has been a losing issue in the public eye for Republicans. In their responses, some candidates, such as Mike Pence, were still in favor of a federal abortion ban, while others, such as Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, avoided any kind of commitment to a ban. Does the lack of commitment to a federal abortion ban signify a shift in the party's attitudes to kind of pull in some more of those moderate voters? Yeah, it was so interesting to watch this. This is one of the things I love about presidential nomination seasons is you get to see a party working it out on the fly, what they're going to be about. (laughs) And Ukraine, we might talk about is one of those issues where they're trying to figure out where they are. And on abortion, you know, the success that Republicans got in overturning Roe v. Wade last year was a great policy victory. It was 50 years in the making, but it's put the party in a really strange place that some Republicans want to now go further and enact a nationwide limit or state bans or something else. And others say, no, no, we've gotten enough. Let's talk about something else because we're now on the losing side of that issue. And it hurt them in the midterms for sure. It's hurting them now. So I think the candidates were talking to one another as much as they were talking to the public. You know, Nikki Haley is saying, this is not realistic. We're not going to get enough votes in the Congress, 60 votes in the Senate to enact a national ban. And six weeks or 15 weeks, those are too tight. That's not where the consensus is. And we should do something else. But others like Tim Scott and Mike Pence saying, no, no, no. If you're for life, meaning protecting fetuses from abortion, then you've got to be that consistently. And we can't let blue states have laws that are allowing abortion access to still happen, those kinds of things. So it's going to be hard for the party to find a winning side or an acceptable way to handle that in the general election if right now there's such internal disagreement. Biden immediately went to town (laughs) after the debate, uh, and other Democrats did as well. We might talk about their response too. But they're in a kind of troubling place having some success that's now put them in a position to think about what the next steps are, and those are hard steps. Yeah, so another one of those issues that you mentioned was Ukraine. 
the moderators did also ask the candidates about their opinions on sending additional aid to Ukraine. How did the candidates' answers vary on this question? Wait, there was a lot of foreign policy in that debate, a lot of discussion of Ukraine and China and Russia and China and their connection. Not so much about trade or even much about immigration, which are, I think if Trump were there, there'd be more of that. But it was sort of surprising to see the Ukraine focus. Real division among the candidates on Ukraine as well. Ramaswamy was the most vocal in saying we should not be supporting the Ukrainians at all. Let the Russians and the Ukrainians fight this out, pull everybody back and pull out our funding. That's very much the America first vision of things. It's close to the perspective that Trump would have. And so that was part of uh, Ramaswamy, I think, mimicking Trump at a number of points during the debate. But you saw tremendous pushback from Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Chris Christie, really establishment figures in the party. You know, they cut their teeth probably during the Reagan-Bush years of the Republican Party when Republicans were internationalists and were were obviously concerned about the Soviet Union and the Cold War but then trying to limit Russia's influence and fighting these proxy wars to prevent Russia from expanding. So, you know, Christie and Haley really called out Ramaswamy for being naive and irresponsible for that. DeSantis, I thought, probably had the right middle ground approach. He said he wanted the European countries to step up and have more involvement and pay their fair share. And if they did that, then maybe the U.S. could help escalate support for Ukraine. So that's probably a middle ground where a lot of the public is that didn't really shine through in the conversation, but it struck me as a way to kind of solve this division within the party. Yeah. Overall, what has the Democratic Party's response to the debate been? Yeah, I mentioned they were already critical that Trump was not there you know, sort of calling him out as a chicken or something. That's a thing parties do. Since the debate, there's been some social media stuff and even some ads put out by the Biden-Harris campaign. Key one is focused on the positions the candidates took on abortion in the debate. You know, they were all generally in favor of some limitations on abortion, certainly supportive of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. I think the Democrats just feel like they're on the winning side of that issue. As I mentioned, it worked for them in the midterm elections to stop Republicans from making big gains. They strategically, I think, would love to see it remain a top issue through the general election next year. I think they rightly believe they will win over some moderate, uh, especially single and more educated women who might be persuadable by the Republicans um, if abortion is a top issue. Democratic response is also focused on where the Republicans are on climate. There was a question posed by the moderators, uh, raise your hand kind of question. Do you believe that climate change is caused by human activity? And none of the Republicans raised their hand. That's easy material, I think, for Democrats. They also feel like they're probably on the right side of that issue, the majority side of that issue. It was sometime earlier this year or last year that Biden started referring to the MAGA Republicans. I think he did that in his State of the Union address early in the year. So he's trying to carve out the hardcore Trump support within the party and some of the more controversial figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, say, in the House from regular Republicans. He doesn't want to offend and lose all possibility of winning some Republican votes in the general election. So it looks to me like the Dem strategy coming out of this debate is foreshadowing what we're going to see all through the next year, which is to isolate the Trump, as they're calling the MAGA Republicans, from the rest of the party or other people who might think of themselves as conservatives or something. And the candidates on Wednesday night did give the Democrats some material to make that easier to do. Yeah, kind of sticking to this MAGA Republican theme. It has been a notable split in the Republican Party in that the far right, and we probably first most 
clearly saw this with McCarthy's House nomination elections. It can't help me from stopping to think that if Trump weren't to win the nomination, the Republican nomination, if there's any chance we would see something parallel to 1912 with the Bull Moose Party and kind of the security of the two nominees not being so secure anymore. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up 1912. <laughs> this, I think this is the last time that a sitting president ran against a former sitting president because Teddy Roosevelt came back as the third party candidate and it cost the Republicans the race. They probably could have won it had it just been a Republican versus a Democrat. Uh, you know, it'd be a different dynamic this time if Trump were denied the nomination and yet the kind of Freedom Caucus MAGA side of the party split off and created its own nominee. You know, I don't think that will happen because what's different today from 100 years ago is the polarization of the parties has become so complete and animosity towards the other side is so strong that it really brings parties together. The Republicans and the Democrats, to some degree, are kind of a mess. They're just a lot of different groups and ideas and demographics represented. And that's fine. That's what big parties are supposed to be. But there's so much dislike for the other side that it makes it easier for them to come together and sort of forget about those differences. So voting for the speaker, that was tough. Um, but Republicans had such a slim majority in the House. It sort of gave those folks leverage that they won't have in some other settings. But I think as long as Biden is the nominee, they believe he's beatable. They believe he's a terrible president. They're unhappy with his performance. They believe he's corrupt. That is a unifying material. <laughs> you know, if Haley or DeSantis or someone else ends up being the nominee, Trump might cause some trouble because he's going to want to counter-program that whole thing during the general election. But in the end, the Republican voters, I think, will mostly be on board. So this debate covered a very wide range of topics. Is there anything that we have not yet talked about today that you think we should or alternatively, was there a topic that you were expecting to hear about on Wednesday night that did not make it into the debate questions? I thought there would be a lot more attention paid to concerns about educational curricula and gender. Things like critical race theory, DEI initiatives, trans athletes participating in sports, control over curriculums in K through 12 schools. Those have been such hot issues for the Republicans. They come up on the campaign trail. They've been the heart of the DeSantis administration in his national campaign for president. You know, the anti-woke act he signed into law in Florida and the efforts to kind of remake some colleges in K through 12 schools in Florida. It's come up in Texas and lots of other places. And it animates the base of the party, definitely the MAGA section of the party that Ramaswamy was going after. And yet it barely came up in the debate. The moderators, I guess, just chose not to raise those issues so much. There was a mention of gender ideology. That was the phrase that came up at one point, but it was kind of fleeting. My guess is in future debates, you're going to get more of this. I'm not sure those are all winning issues in a general election. Definitely not LGBT stuff. I think the electorate has moved enough in a progressive direction that probably the Republicans are on the losing side there. But with trans athletes participating in high school sports and some of the curriculum and local control of schooling stuff, they probably still do have the upper hand in public opinion. You know, how much and how it comes up in debates, I think, will depend on whether this is still mostly a conversation within the Republican Party trying to win the nomination or it starts to be communications about the general election. But that was just a, kind of a notable open spot that I thought would be a pretty big part of the night. 
I know that when I was watching, I was very surprised that a few of the candidates, mainly Chris Christie and Tim Scott, chose to talk about breaking up teachers unions. And I was really shocked that they were doing that in Wisconsin, just kind of given our history here with Act 10 and such. I'm not sure if public consensus around that issue has changed since then or if they had a different angle that they were going for. But it was interesting to see them engage over teachers unions instead of some of those other hot topic education related issues that we were talking about, like CRT or school choice or like parental rights in the classroom. I, too, was surprised that that was the piece of education we were talking about Wednesday night and not all this other stuff that's been part of the Republican conversation. I do think Republicans have been good at distinguishing teachers who are mostly beloved by people, especially their local community teachers in public schools, and teachers unions, which have been portrayed as kind of corrupt or distorting of the process or controlling of public schools. For those of you who remember Scott Walker's governorship here, he was pretty good, I think, at cozying up to teachers and showing his respect for education while also really going after teacher unions and other public sector unions and dismantling them in a lot of ways during his administration. And that goes over pretty well with the public, I think, and especially with Republicans who are no fans of unions, of course, and you know, are skeptical of what's happening in schools in a bunch of different ways. The unions can be seen as part of that. There was one candidate, was it Tim Scott, I think, who talked kind of lovingly about teachers. Maybe it was Mike Pence. You know, they're heroes. We appreciate them. They're underpaid. Um, They need to be protected and those kinds of things. But that's pretty different from the attacks on unions. Those, I think, are easy lines for Republicans, if they can remember just to keep that distinction clean. Looking forward a bit here, as you already mentioned, there will be another Republican presidential primary debate, this time happening on September 27th in California. What should viewers be looking forward to at that debate? And is there anything that we should keep an eye out for? Well, I think it'll be a better debate because it'll be a smaller field. You know, very difficult to get eight people involved in two hours with commercial breaks. Someone described it as demolition derby. It was just a lot of little things happening and kind of jumping from issue to issue. So hopefully with a smaller group, they can have a deeper conversation on some issues. But I think there'll probably also be more of candidates turning on one another. As the nomination gets deeper and closer to Iowa and New Hampshire, candidates get more desperate and they're willing to take punches or administer punches that they wouldn't have in the early days when they're really trying to introduce themselves and establish their identities. So if someone like Christie continues to make the debate, he's going to be hitting hard on pretty much everyone else on the stage. Ramaswamy is going to get it from the other candidates, I think, uh, because he's going to continue to float from this debate. I think a big question is whether Trump comes back to participate in any of them. It seems unlikely his message that he posted on social media was that he wouldn't be participating in debates, plural, but he's been known to change his mind. Let's just say that. And it's possible he will circle back and decide there's something happening and he wants to be part of it. So that could really change things if he were to reappear. Yeah. And to kind of talk about, you know, the debate and turning on each other. How much of an advantage is it for Democrats who have an incumbent, who don't have to go through the selection process, how much of an advantage is that giving to them having the ability to kind of sit out this part of the process this time around with Biden as the almost certain nominee? Yeah, it's really helpful to be the incumbent party (laughs) running for re-election. Biden has a couple of opponents who are giving him some trouble. They will be on the ballot in those states but there won't be debates. They won't get a substantial part of the vote. 
he'll have to answer questions about why they're winning 10 or 20% of the vote in some of these primaries, but it's, it's not really going to trip him up. Yeah, as the incumbent, you get to do some things. One is you get to raise a ton of money. All the money that the DNC and Biden-Harris are raising now is going for their re-election campaign, which is already running. You know, there were ads put up, uh, billboards in Milwaukee around the debate hall. There were ads running uh, during and after the debate. So they're already spending on the campaign. Whereas the Republicans are fighting for the same dollars, right? Tim Scott is trying to raise enough money to keep his campaign afloat. And so is DeSantis and the rest of them. And they're going after mostly the same people, former or recent Republican donors and against Trump's machine as well. And so none of them are going to be able to keep up with the fundraising. That will level out in the general election when we're down to one candidate on each side. But the fundraising advantage is really helpful. Biden can begin to build his data analytics team and, you know, build field offices and all the things he's going to need in the general. The other thing it does for the incumbent party is that the party having the debate is basically showing the Democrats where the weaknesses are. The Republicans are poking at one another. So, you know, Nikki Haley said to Ramaswamy at one point, you don't have any experience in foreign policy to say the things you're saying about Israel and China and the Ukraine. You don't know what you're talking about. And Pence went after some people and Christie went after some people. So it's sort of opening up potential lines of attack. And you can see how someone else is trying the applause lines for you and you know doing some of the opposition research. That's before a Republican audience, not in a general election, but there's still things that might be useful. And then, of course, some of the clips, especially the hand-raising events, just make natural advertising material for the Democrats. So they're immediately running digital ads. Even during the debate, I think Biden and the Dems were pushing out stuff. You know, little things candidates had said, maybe taken out of context, but just really helpful for them. So it's nice to be in the driver's seat that way and to watch the other side putting things on the table for you. Yeah. After all that, we can kind of end on a lighter note. How have you been enjoying your summer? And what are you looking forward to the most this coming school year? Well, summer in Madison is always terrific and too fast. Uh, it, it gets scary in August when it feels like I haven't done all the summer things I want yet in terms of fun or in terms of work, and yet it's slipped sliding away. But it was a good summer. I had some students I worked with this summer. Uh, I went to some conferences, you know, professional stuff, which was good. I made it to Door County for the second year in a row, and that was just a terrific vacation spot for all of you non-Wisconsin people. Whatever you want to do, it's probably there. So I don't know if I can get a kickback from the Door County Tourism Board in some way, but it's, it's a really wonderful place to go. And I'm excited about students coming back. I mean, there's an energy that happens immediately after Labor Day on the campus when you go from a few thousand students hanging around in August to 50,000 students <laughs> being present. That's really energizing. Well, I know that here at 1050, we're also excited to be back on campus. And as always, we are excited to have you back on the show. Thank you again, Professor Burden, for joining us today. As always, your commentary was both incredibly insightful and valuable for us. Well, thanks for having me back.